police departments keep things in what seems like endlessly different ways. And our big challenge was to construct sort of one data set where, you know, this item of information means this across 50 different departments. And uh, that, that was kind of the big challenge early on. Journalists who dig deep into government data often uncover surprising and impactful news stories. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media. Ted Melnick and Stephen Rich are database engineers for The Washington Post and part of the team that produced Where Killings Go Unsolved, a deep dive project that examines the arrest rates of over 52,000 homicides in 50 large cities in the U.S. In their time at The Post, they've worked on a number of large-scale investigations, including the 2016 Pulitzer Prize-winning coverage of police shootings in America by The Post. Welcome to the podcast. Ted and Stephen. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Okay, so as a way to introduce who you are, could you sort of each, you know, take a turn, sort of describe what it means to be a data reporter, data journalist at The Post? Government records have a lot to do with journalism, and it used to be the business was going through filing cabinets and looking for reports and forms, but now all that's kept on computers and databases. So, you know, if you're going to do reporting, these days, in some kind of depth, a lot of times instead of asking for paper records, we're asking for data files. And we have to be able to read them and analyze them and figure out what they mean. So how about you, Stephen? So I see our jobs as sort of the context providers for the stories that we work on. The reporters that we work with, they find interesting anecdotes and they go deep and report them. And our job is to say how often this is happening, whether or not they're part of a trend or they're an outlier. And being able to provide that kind of broader meaning to readers so that they understand what it is that they're actually reading. So you must have really enjoyed working on this particular project, I imagine. It was fun when it was over. <laughs> Actually, it's not over. It's, no, it's it's a we enjoyed the challenge very much. So you say several times, or or to said several times throughout the article that the data that that had been assembled was more detailed than you know even what the FBI is able to report. Ten years of data. Could you sort of speak to that about you know what made your data so rich? The whole reporting something that is deeper than the FBI thing is something that Ted and I are both very. This is old hat for us. Um, <laughs> with the police shooting stuff, we did the same thing. With this one, it was a little different. The police shootings data had problems in that there was an underreporting of the actual events. And the biggest problem with the FBI's data in this case is they don't know how these cases were resolved. So whether or not there was an arrest or an exceptional clearance, for example, where somebody died after killing someone. And they also have literally no idea where these things happen other than the city. And so what we wanted to do in this case was to take a deeper look specifically at where homicide happens. We all focus on Chicago when we talk about homicides nowadays. And so we wanted to be able to say, where in Chicago are there specifically issues with this? And we wanted to look at this other problem, which is arrests and homicides, because most of the time we talk a lot about the homicide problem being that it's going up, which is generally speaking not true. It is in some cities. It's not in others. But there is a serious problem across the board that the homicide clearance rate is going down and the homicide arrest rate is also going down. How did you gather your data? I think I'll just, just ask that simply. 
it was kind of a painstaking process because there's no central place where this is reported. So we had to go to all the different police departments and make requests. And we asked for items of information that we thought they had because they were probably reporting it some way or another. Stephen took the lead in getting all those requests out there. And as we got started uh, more than a year ago, I started looking at the data coming in. And one thing we discovered was that police departments keep things in what seems like endlessly different ways. And our big challenge was to construct sort of one data set where, you know, this item of information means this across 50 different departments. That was kind of the big challenge early on. We did a, a podcast probably about a year ago. Uh, ProPublica had, had a project where they were looking at hate crimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when they started looking into this reporting of hate crimes, they discovered very quickly that the FBI had different types of information, that localities had different types of information, different interpretations of what you know, constitutes hate crime, at least in a homicide, I guess. Everybody kind of knows what a homicide is. But the thing that I find fascinating about about this report is this decision to do it, you know, tie it to a location. I mean, we, we speak in generalities about a city, but, but you're actually looking at, you know, city blocks almost and neighborhoods at the very least. And, you know, what the the number of homicides are in particular areas in a city and what the uh, case closure information is. You know, at what point did you kind of make this decision that let's, why don't we break this out and look into it as a, as a location type project? I think that was decided at the very beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, as part of, there's sort of two, two parts of the concept. One, find out where arrests were made, find out where the events are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, You know, mapping events is one of the great frontiers in journalism now. Mm. You know, government data on what happens, things that happen in a particular place is just sort of exploding. So one of the great challenges and one of the satisfying things was to gather all this data and then figure out a way to summarize it and expose the patterns and make it accessible. So now you both, as people who sort of gathered the data, you, you weren't necessarily involved in the reporting and the interviewing of the subjects. We were involved in reporting and interviewing the data and the people <laughs> who provided the data, okay. which, which was actually an industry into itself. You know, we found some police departments who didn't actually have this data on hand, surprisingly enough. Mm -hmm. We found some police departments who could not tell us the names of homicide victims, which was kind of surprising and in a way disappointing, I think. So 50 different cities, there really were very few who handed us information that was good and clean and and ready to use. Okay, so you probably at the very beginning you you set out with your parameters. We we need this information and this information and this right. information. with the understanding that your sources are going to, however they're keeping their records, it may be very different or how they're doing it. What was kind of the? I mean, you said it took maybe sort of over a year to do this or about a year to do this. You know, was the response that you had from most of the localities pretty positive about getting you this information? Were there a lot of hurdles? Um, mostly it was logistical. You know, it was like whether they had the information handy and whether they wanted to take the time to get it together if they didn't have it handy. 
Well, let's circle back to this this idea of you know lo data location is being sort of a new frontier for journalism. Being able to amass this type of data to tell your stories, what you know, what do you see is is the positive from a journalistic standpoint, the positive result of this? You know, what what types of stories can you tell that maybe you weren't able to tell before? Well, I think in this particular instance, you know, the way, like Stephen said, we have reporters who are generating a very powerful narrative story. And we can use the data to, one, provide context and show how, you know, the people they're interviewing fit into are part of a true overall pattern, which sort of adds, you know, a level of authenticity to the story. And also to um, sort of provide hints and guidance and to point reporters toward, okay, this neighborhood has a lot of homicides and no arrests. Well, until we did this mapping, nobody really knew what neighborhoods to do reporting in. Mm -hmm. And we did that um, on our published site. We have maps of homicides in 50 different cities. Uh, we also had an internal version of that tool that we'd started more than a year ago, that the report that was even more detailed, that the reporters could go in and explore the data. So were the, the reporters involved from the very beginning? I mean, you, you know, how did this, how does this sort of like spring out? Was it, a, was it a data question or was it a reporter question? That so, like, go on. So a couple of years ago, uh, a few of us uh, did a rudimentary version of this in Chicago in which we did not actually map it. We just figured out, uh, we basically mapped the points to figure out which neighborhoods they were in and then figured out which neighborhoods had the lowest arrest rates. And so we did a story about the neighborhoods in Chicago where where murder was effectively legal because they were not arresting anybody for for it. And so... Uh, out of that sort of sprang the question of what would this look like in other cities? Because like Chicago is basically a city where if you if you get murdered, you're you have a very low uh, chance that that it's going to get solved at this point. Their their homicide clearance rate is under twenty percent, um, and so that was not as interesting as us to some of the ones where maybe they have a higher clearance rate, but there are still pockets in cities, and so. We wanted to try and figure this out at a large scale, which is when we had a meeting and and figured out how we would sort of approach this. Okay. So as this data came in, was there was there anything that sort of jumped out at you, you know, maybe immediately over time that sort of surprised you? Theories about questions to ask and look for. So, you know, for example, the racial disparity was sort of an obvious question, and it was sort of surprising how widespread that was across... 50 cities. I think what one of the things we learned was when you make this map and sort of look at the, and we have a, I have a wall in my area where I've got 50 paper maps pasted up there. So you look at these maps with the high and the low arrest rates. Well, you've got some cities like Chicago and Baltimore where everything is low arrest. They don't seem to make any arrests anywhere. You have some cities like Richmond where it looks like they arrest Everybody. in almost every case. <laughs> Then you have other cities where you have large areas of one of each that are not far apart. So what makes that difference in the same city with the same police force, the same budget, the same number of detectives, people who are neighbors with each other? I think that's one of the fascinating questions. And then we have other maps like where 
there's sort of this speckled pattern where you have like little tiny high and low arrest rates, which suggests that asking a question about, well, is there some sort of street corner effect, like a type of establishment or something where, you know, people who with weapons tend to gather or something like that. I guess one of the things we hope people will do, will look at these maps and um, help us out with some of the factors and forces and influences that may be shaping these vastly different patterns across all these cities. Yeah, the thing about the story, and it is pretty amazing, the maps tell so many different stories on them. You know, I mentioned before we turned on the mics, I'm from Indianapolis. I went to grade school like a mile and a half from one of these high murder, high unsolved, Mm -hmm. or unsolved slash not arrested areas. So it surprised me, you know, being, you know, 20, 30 years away from being living in that area to see how it's changed. So, you know, starting with data that is, you know, arrests and and crimes, and, you know, when do you start sort of folding in, you know, try to put context? You know, is this a, you know, is this have something to do with racial disparity? Does this have something to do with socioeconomic? Does that, are those factors that you begin to fold into your data process? I think it's a back and forth and sort of mutual feedback process with the reporters. You know, they find out hints and tips from people. We get data to try to measure it and confirm it and maybe suggest a pattern, and then they can go out and sort of check that and bring back more ideas. So it's really back and forth. But I want to get back to your use of the word surprise. I think some of the the law enforcement people were sort of surprised by what we found. One reason was they tended to take a very short, look at a very short time horizon. You know, they're interested in, okay, is homicide going up now compared to this year? By looking at a decade of offenses, that we showed them a picture, and people who live in those cities, a picture that really nobody had compiled before. One of the takeaways I have for the story is, I mean, this is a, you know, this data that you provided the stories that are told in your project really kind of only scratching the surface. There's so many other things that I could see just, you know, year in and year out growing as more people begin to understand what's going in in those, those neighborhoods. You, you know, there were interviews of, of uh, police officers and the way that they interacted with the community who may, who may have had a higher incident of solving these, uh, these crimes. You had family members talking about, uh, the impact on their lives at community people talking about how they're trying to change things. There's just so much rich stories that can be told just around this data. I, so was, I guess you'll have to keep reading the Washington Post. I know Mike. that's I know that's what this is all about. Yeah. You know to to keep the Washington Post. And, uh, and I want to make sure people know that if they want to find these stories, they can search Washington Post and. Uh, Murder with impunity, where killings go unsolved. Yeah, and we're, we're definitely going to have a link to this project, yeah. and I encourage everybody to take a look at it. Look at the cities that you you live in, but also look at some of the other ones. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, looking at Baltimore and Richmond. Richmond was a really kind of an interesting uh, amount of data when you think about how that is compared to the D.C. area. Even just seeing D.C., the different neighborhoods, what you might in your mind have is what, what would be the quote-unquote bad neighborhoods, but then understanding, well, good and bad doesn't necessarily quantify the fact that that homicides aren't being uh, solved in. So so how did you guys get involved in data in this type of journalism? 
I originally went to school for aerospace engineering <laughs> at Virginia Tech. Enjoyed it, was good at it, did not think I'd like my day job, so I bounced around to a few different things and wound up going to journalism school to do long-form magazine writing. <laughs> and when I got there, somebody introduced me to the concept of data journalism, which seemed like a natural fit for my, my skill set, and I sort of just took to it. It was really sort of a niche that, that made a lot of sense for me. How about you? Well... I started off as a reporter and spent several years at small and medium newspapers. I was always interested in documents, particularly. I've known police reporters, for example, who would station themselves at the officer's entrance at shift changes, and they would chit-chat with officers and get on all kinds of incredible stories. I tended to be a person who didn't talk to quite so many people, but I would go through 400 pages of reports uh, looking for, um, for something. So um, luckily, it takes all kinds of people to do things in the, in the newsroom. And then um, when, this sounds like ancient history, but when PCs first appeared in the newsroom, it wasn't until the 80s. And the idea that we need to look and the government started producing like campaign finance data and all kinds of other data, census data on CDs that you could look at and, uh, and apply to your neighborhood and your area. It was, uh, it, it was just a really interesting kind of boom time when people were doing data-related stories for the first time. And that just caught my interest, and I was really lucky that People I worked for encouraged that and, you know, um, sent me to training, gave me time to learn things. It's been incredible so far because, you know, you just never stop learning. You don't know what's going to come next. And it's challenging. Yeah, well, and people saw value in it, clearly, in doing this type of journalism. Let's actually get a little wonky. Let's talk about the actual process of assembling the data and, and the program's that you're using and sort of the strategy that you, you did use to put together a project like this. You know, tell me about the beginning steps. What do you, what do you do to go out and get and assemble this, this information? Like I said, the, at the very beginning, Stephen took charge of the data requests. Okay. So he was out dealing with 50 departments and I started working with the data as it came in, trying to figure out, well, how are we going to present it? How are we going to analyze it? How are we going to share it with reporters and that sort of thing? One of the first things that we came up with was using this approach called a kernel density analysis. Now, all that is is a grid of dots. And we experimented with different size grids and different parameters. But uh, basically, it's a, it's a grid of dots a couple hundred yards apart over every city. And what that meant was we wanted something we could we could lay over every city, you know, because neighborhood maps differ. Census tract sure. maps wouldn't work because a lot of times census tract boundaries are on streets. Well, street addresses are on streets right on the line. So that doesn't really help. So this, this sort of grid idea seemed like the best thing to do. One of the interesting questions is we had to recognize that our locations were really approximate. They seem very exact because you're putting a dot on a map, but some of the departments would round off the block number and that sort of thing. 
And also, you think about the effect of a homicide is not right on that point. It sort of radiates out toward the neighborhood. If there's a homicide four blocks from your house, you feel it. Yeah. And so all those kind of elements were built into our analysis where we took this grid that had, you know, almost 2 million cells laid it over 50 cities. And for every point, it's like we stood on that point on a tall stepladder and looked around, say, you know, three-tenths of a mile or so, and counted how many homicides we could see from that point. And in much the same way that objects become smaller as they get farther away, the ones that were farther away, we didn't quite count so much, but the ones that were closer, we counted more to get an estimate for the neighborhood that that point was the center of. And that's what those little squares represent. The data is all in a point in the center. And so it sort of spreads the, it's a way to account for sort of the the influence of a homicide being broader, sort of smudges them out a little bit, but at the same time gives us a reliably repeatable measure that we could do across cities. So that was kind of what the visualization is based on. Yeah, it's a, it's a way to assemble the data and it'll make it easier for the reporters to figure out what the story is. Right. Yeah, right. recognize the points in, in, from a storytelling standpoint. Is this something you developed for this project or something for the, the previous project that you've done or is this something you guys have been doing for a while? We didn't use it in police shootings, but we have used it in um, one or two other homicide projects at the Washington Post a few years ago. And and it is a, a technique that is used in law enforcement as a way to visualize patterns. So what do you think of the reaction or what type of reaction have you gotten to this project? It's been kind of great. We specifically put out these interactive maps because we wanted people to be able to dive in and see in their own neighborhoods or neighborhoods where they grew up or neighborhoods that, uh, where their friends live in. And it's been we've gotten really great feedback from folks who have just drilled into their own neighborhoods and tried to understand this and we're still getting like we're still getting emails from people who are reading and and asking questions and wanting to know more and people who are able to provide some context to some of the things we didn't know and so it's been kind of amazing how fascinated people are by this subject and also the fact that when you published it you released all the data for people to to examine it wasn't we're going to keep this and we're going to just feed it out as we write stories, it was like the the data itself is part of the the story. You know, people are going to want to see what their their local city, their local neighborhoods are. It, was that a decision from the very beginning that, that all this data was going to come out at the same time? I don't think we have any choice these days but to be transparent about the data that we're working with, unless there's some sort of privacy issue or sure. proprietary issue or something like that. And really, I hope other people will use the data and do visualizations and analyses that we haven't done yet and and tell us about it when they do and look for things that we either haven't found or haven't thought to look for. Cool. Ted, Stephen, thank you for coming in. This is great. You know, like I said, I'm going to have a link to this this project on our web website. You know, keep up the good work. This is great journalism. This is one of the reasons why we're here is to to provide context and tell big stories. And, uh, you know, the work that you guys are doing with data, you know, is a huge help to do that. Thanks. Thank you. 
You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. It takes a lot of work to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nick Hunter provided web support. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Want to find out more about our podcast? Go to itsalljournalism.com where you can download past episodes and learn about our Patreon campaign and how to sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. It's been a long time since I mentioned social media, but uh, you can follow us on Twitter at All Journalism and look for us on Facebook. We post regular updates there and share links that uh, you might find useful. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.